Song of Songs, chapter 3, starting at verse 5. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Who is this coming up from the wilderness like a column of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and incense, made from all the spices of the merchant? Look, it is Solomon's carriage, escorted by 60 warriors, the noblest of Israel, all of them wearing the sword, all experienced in battle, each with his sword at his side, prepared for the terrors of the night. King Solomon made for himself the carriage. He made it of wood from Lebanon. Its posts he made of silver, its base of gold. Its seat was upholstered with purple, its interior inlaid with love. Daughters of Jerusalem, come out and look, you daughters of Zion. Look on King Solomon wearing a crown, the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day his heart rejoiced. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn, coming up from the washing. Each has its twin. Not one of them is alone. Your lips are a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with courses of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense. You are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Descend from the crest of Amana, from the top of Senir, the summit of Hermon, from the lion's dens and the mountain haunts of leopards. You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine, and the fragrance of your perfume more than any spice. Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like a fragrance of, from, of Lebanon. You are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, with henna and nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon with every kind of incense tree, with myrrh and aloes, and all the finest spices. You are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. Awake, north wind, and come, south wind. Blow on my garden, that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh with its spice, with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. Oh, good morning, everybody, and thank you very much for our readers who read that very well. 
I wonder what you uh, get passionate about. Different things people get passionate about in life. I think one of them might be music, going to a live concert. Uh, whether uh, you're one of those who likes to jump up and down in the mosh pit, or uh, you'd rather sit sedately and listen to a piece of classical music. Uh, music stirs the soul, doesn't it? Or uh, another picture coming up here. Maybe it's um, sport. Maybe the, uh, the enjoying the skill and artistry of uh, sportsmen and women. Or maybe just playing sport yourself. The thrill of playing sport. Maybe it's natural beauty. Maybe you love just walking in the mountains, enjoying the beauty of creation around you, taking in the sights and the smells. Maybe it's um, art in its different forms, uh, whether it's painting, whether it's maybe sculpture or architecture or, or whatever. Or maybe it's food, either the creative side of uh, preparing a meal or just stuff in your face. Food moves our insides in more ways than one. What do all these things have in common? Are they our responses to beauty? Beauty takes many different forms, and the phrase beauty is in the eye of the, of the beholder is very true, isn't it? What one may find beautiful may not necessarily be shared by another. And we've been given in varying degrees an ability to, to appreciate the natural beauty of God's created world and a talent to create artistic beauty ourselves and an appreciation of the artistic beauty of others. Ultimately, beauty is a reflection of God's glory, and so there is a spiritual dimension to it. We also have different ways of expressing our passions, don't we? Some of you may be very outwardly expressive. You may like to jump up and down, to shout out loud. Others, and that's part of the British culture, I guess, are more reserved um, and just inwardly enjoy that, that moment. It's not that one is more passionate than another, it's just that one expresses it in a different way. Well, how excited we may become by any of these things. Nowhere do we see the depths of passion and the expression of passion more than in relationships. Last week, we looked at the fact that we have been made for relationships. God created us for relationships and above all for relationship with him. And this week, we're looking at the fact that we have been made as passionate beings. There is a passion that we can have for our, our husband or wife, which comes out strongly in this passage. But that points to a much greater passion that God has for his people. And what God longs for is for us to have that same passion for him. So let's have a look at the passage. The scene here is the wedding of uh, King Solomon uh, in chapter 3. It's a special occasion. No expense is spared. Instead of one best man, he has 60. Carriage is escorted by the 60 greatest warriors in, in the empire. And we're told the dust kicked up by the, the hooves can be seen miles away like a column of smoke. The royal carriage is described in all its beauty with uh, wood from Lebanon, posts made of silver, its base of gold, its seat upholstered with purple. But more impressive than the beauty of his carriage is the beauty 
of his bride. As he goes into to chapter 4, verse 1, he says, How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. And he uses uh, lots of metaphors to describe her beauty, many of which may be a little bit uh, unusual for us. Uh, maybe not. Maybe you do describe your wife's teeth like a flock of sheep just shorn. I don't know. Um, also, many of them are not necessarily physical comparisons with the shape of what they're comparing it with, but to do with other aspects of these things. So when he describes her eyes as uh, uh, like doves, he's probably referring to their brightness, their, their gentleness. When he describes her hair as a, like a flock of goats descending from the, the hills of Gilead, it's probably the fact that they're, they're black in, her hair is black in color. It's the flow of her, of her hair. The temples, or probably more like the, the, the cheeks, being described as two halves of, pom- of pomegranate, um, might be referring to the redness of their colour. Her neck, in verse 4, like the Tower of David, with these shields hanging off it, probably refers to the strength of her neck. Images of a rugby prop forward come to mind, but I don't think that's what he's saying. It's, um, she has a royal bearing, doesn't she? She's upright. and Then the breasts, like fawns of a gazelle, probably to do with their, their smoothness uh, to the touch. But he finishes the description in verse 7. You are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. Of course, there will be many flaws in her, as uh, there are in all of us. But her beauty blinds him to those. In his eyes, she's perfect. But having admired her beauty, the king then goes on to talk about their relationship and and the delights of love. Basically, so far he said, uh, in modern day talk, I fancy you, and now he's saying, will you marry me? Just a little bit more poetically. But it starts with an invitation, doesn't it? Have a look at verse 8. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. He's saying, leave all thoughts of other places behind, and let's be devoted to one another. He acknowledges that he's been captivated by her. And he no longer belongs to himself. He belongs to her. Verse 9, he says, you have stolen my heart. All it takes is one glance of your eyes, and I have that connection with you. Verse 10, he says, how delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine. And the fragrance of your perfume more than any spice. He starts to talk about her lips, and he's now referring to the feel of her kiss. As we go into verse 12, the imagery turns to that of a garden. At the moment, he's saying the garden is locked up, it's enclosed, it's sealed. She's not given herself to, to anyone else. She's kept her virginity for her husband for her wedding night. But when he starts to describe your plants, um, he's not just talking about her body now. He's talking about all the different aspects of her character and personality. As he walks up and down the garden, as he pauses to admire a certain plant, he's pausing to admire something about her personality. And there's so much that he knows that she has to offer And hence the the climactic description in verse 15. You are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming down.
from Lebanon. And after this, this long description and uh, this explanation of uh, their love, the girl gives herself to him. She says in verse 16, let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. And it's not just here, her her body she's offering to him, she's offering him uh, her whole life. She's inviting him into the garden of her life where he's free to pick and eat whatever fruit he chooses. It's the language of the the marriage service, isn't it? Remember the wedding vows? Um, It might uh, be quite recent for some of you, like Nathan and Lisa, might be a little bit longer ago for others. Um, But these are the words, with my body, I honor you. All that I am, I give to you. And all that I have, I share with you within the love of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so the consummation of the marriage is described, and again, in poetic language in chapter 5, verse 1, I've come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I've gathered my myrrh with my spice. I've eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I've drunk my wine and my milk. The language of of the man and the woman becoming one flesh in Genesis is not just about a sexual union. It's about a sharing of their whole lives, physical, emotional, and spiritual. It's only when each of those is united that there is true intimacy between the husband and the wife. But recognizing the power of sexual attraction, though the passage started back in chapter 3 in verse 5 with some words of warning, which are repeated three times in the the book. Have a look back. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Until the right commitment is there, the girl is urging restraint. And what this verse is getting at is that although we've been made as passionate beings, we should not allow our passions to dictate our actions, which goes totally against the spirit of our times, which is if it feels good, do it. The Bible teaches us that our emotions, like every aspect of our beings, uh, have been tainted by sin. They're not reliable. When people just follow their sexual passions, it, uh, it can lead to much pain. We see that in the story of David and Bathsheba, don't we, in the Old Testament, where it led to adultery and it led to murder. God has given us boundaries in our behavior to to help us enjoy life in the way it was intended, to avoid us getting into a physical relationship at the wrong time, in the wrong place, and with the wrong person. And we live at at a time when to keep your virginity until you get married is not just uncommon, it is ridiculed by those who are not Christians. And yet, because God made us, he knows what is best for us. And so the the boundaries he has given us within which we can enjoy the gift of sex are those provided by marriage. Now, that doesn't mean if you have made mistakes in this area that all is now hopeless. The great news of the gospel is all about forgiveness. We've all made mistakes in different parts of our lives. Sex is one of those areas where we are vulnerable. But we can all still be forgiven. Well, if marriage is a place where we can enjoy sex and this passage is about that joy, then what do we do with this? What else is this passage here for? Well, as I said last week, I think Song of Songs is, is first a celebration of a passionate love of a, of a man for a woman. 
Um, but we can't just read it at that level. That would be to see a relationship between a man and woman separate from the one who made them um, and the one who should be the center of their relationship. So it's also a metaphor for the relationship between God and his people, or Christ, and the church. And there's therefore a purpose in that. It's intended to inspire us by God's passionate love for each one of us. So let's come on to that now, the passion of Christ for his bride. And in many places in the Bible, the metaphor of the the bridegroom and the bride is used to describe that relationship of God with his people. So we're going to do a bit of jumping around a bit, but let's go first of all to Isaiah chapter 62, verse 3, and you'll find this on page 750 of the church Bibles. Isaiah chapter 62, verse 3. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate, but you'll be called Hephzibah, which means my delight is in her, and your land Beulah, which means married. For the Lord will take delight in you, and your land will be married. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. God finds his people beautiful. He describes them as a a crown of splendor, a royal diadem. He takes great delight in his people. Sadly, the the people of Israel were unfaithful to him, and we'll look at... um, that in the context of broken relationships next week. But here he is expressing his passion for his people. And the image is picked up by Jesus in the New Testament, who describes himself as the bridegroom. But in Ephesians, uh, the image is even more explicit. Let's go to Ephesians uh, in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 5, page 1176 of the Church Bibles. These instructions that Paul gives for Christian households. But have a look at verse 25, how he compares the love of a husband for a wife. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. You see here the similarity with the way the king in the Song of Songs describes his bride. In his sight, she's perfect, even though we know she's not because she's human. Here the church is described as radiant, as beautiful, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. That is how God sees his people. Of course, we're not 
But that is what he sees when he looks at us because he sees the beauty, he sees the perfection of Jesus Christ. The perfection that has been credited to us. Again, we'll come back to the, to the importance of self-giving in our relationships later on. But for now, we need to take note that Christ loved us. He gave himself up for us. And if we lo- accept his love, if we love him in return, we are made perfect in God's sight. He takes away our sin. We receive his righteousness. We all need love. But if you're looking for human love as the thing that will fulfill you, then you will be disappointed because human love is not perfect. It can be good, but it will never be perfect. God's love is perfect. If you put your trust in Jesus Christ, in the eyes of God, you are beautiful. I don't know how you may feel about yourself, right? at this moment in time. Maybe you feel pretty bad about yourself. Maybe you feel you are just unlovable. Maybe you you feel worthless. Maybe you feel you can't live up to the expectations of being a Christian. Maybe you've been emotionally hurt by somebody who's hurt you and you've bottled up your, your emotions. But if you put your trust in Jesus Christ, in the eyes of God, you are beautiful. Maybe you are, you're single, uh, and you're reading this passage in Song of Songs and finding it actually quite hard because you would love to be married, but the right person just hasn't come along. Maybe you're widowed and thinking back to what you did have or divorced and uh, thinking, you know, this sounds great in theory, but actually that wasn't how it was for me. The great encouragement for all of us, whether we're married, whether we're single, whether we're divorced or widowed, is that God has a passion for all of his people. And I don't want to suggest, uh, by the way, in any during this series, that singleness is in any way second rate. God loves married people and singles equally. And actually, God often uses those who are single um, in a far more effective and wide-ranging way in their ministry. So, you know, if you are single, don't uh, just... uh, put your life on hold and think, um, until I become married, I won't be fulfilled as a human being. No, enjoy the love that God has for you. That is what brings you fulfillment. There won't be marriage in heaven between human beings. The only marriage in heaven will be between Christ and his church. So if Christ admires the beauty of his bride, the church, and loves her, how does his delight in her love compare to the delight that we read about in the passage between the king and his bride. Well, in Jeremiah 2, God tells Jeremiah, the prophet, to say to his people, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. God delighted in the love of his bride. And one way in which God expresses his love for his people in Old Testament times is in the promise of land. Um, Although it's physical land, it's symbolic of the blessings that God pours out on his people out of his love for them. When they turned their backs uh, on him, he withdrew that blessing and um, took them out of the land, took them into physical exile, which was also a spiritual exile. 
And so in Psalm 37, David says, dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. In other words, remain in God's love. And so when in Song of Songs, the husband uses imagery of the land, it is symbolic of God's love for us. He even uses the phrase milk and honey to describe the kiss of his bride. God delights in the love of his people. But how should we express that love for him? For the lovers, it's a giving of themselves to one another. And it's actually the same for us. It's a giving of ourselves to God. In Romans 12, it says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in other words, in view of God's love for you, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And it goes on, do not conform to the pattern of the world. God is saying, show your love to me by offering me your lives. Don't give, me, um, don't give yourself to the world. Give yourself to me. And the question we need to ask ourselves as we come towards the end is, how passionate are we for God? He is passionate for us. How passionate are we for him? How much do we love God? In the book of uh, Revelation, which would uh, be good to turn to, Christ writes seven letters to seven churches in, the, in, verse, in chapters 2 and 3. You could in some ways compare them with a sort of annual performance review. They're a mixture of uh, encouragement, but also constructive criticism. And Jesus doesn't beat around the bush like we might do um, sometimes. He tells it straight. And the reason he does so, if you look at chapter 3, verse 19, the reason he does so is because he loves his people. He says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Some of the things he praises the churches for are their, their hard work, their, their perseverance in the face of affliction, the fact that they've kept the word. The thing he criticizes the church and Laodicea for in verse 16 is that they are neither hot nor cold. He says, because you are lukewarm, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Those are hard words, aren't they? He's criticizing them for losing their passion for him. What has caused this? Well, look as it goes on in verse 17. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. And white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Instead of acknowledging their need for God, instead of rejoicing in his love for them, instead of enjoying all the spiritual blessings that he wants to bestow on them, they're trusting in themselves and their material comforts. They're conforming to the world. One of our big spiritual battles that we'll be looking at this evening is battling in prayer in a world of self-reliance. Prayer is a form of intimacy with God. And the main reason we don't pray more is because we rely on ourselves. We think we'll just carry on and things will be okay. It's only when suddenly there's a disaster we come to God sometimes. But God wants that intimate time of prayer with us constantly. What is encouraging about the 
the, the Christians in the church in Romania, when you go and see them, is, is that they have very little materially. But they have a greater faith in God. They have a greater passion for him because they are totally reliant on him. Now, if God is speaking to us here this morning, if this is us, we've lost our passion for him. What do we do about it? Well, what does God say in verse 19? He says, be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. As a verse is often used to encourage uh, those who are not Christians yet to, to open their lives to Christ, to open them for the first time, let him into your life. Specifically, the context here, though, is aimed at those who are already Christians. This is the church in Laodicea he's writing to here. Those who are Christians, but who've lost their passion. And Jesus is saying, I'm here. I'm here. Will you let me into every aspect of your lives? King in in Song of Songs was expressing his love for his bride and he said to her, come with me. And there came a point where she let him in and they enjoyed that perfect intimacy in their relationship. God invites us to have that perfect intimacy with him. Will you open the door and receive him in? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and praise you that you have a passionate love for us, that you see us as beautiful, because in us you see your son, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, who gave himself for his bride, the the church. Father, thank you that you are preparing us for that great day of marriage when Christ comes again, when we'll go to be with him forever. But Lord, we pray that in the meantime, you would help us to experience that great intimacy in our lives of, of a perfect relationship with you. And Lord, if there is something that is holding us back from that, Lord, we pray that you would enable us to open the door and let you into every aspect of our lives. Help us to enjoy that perfect intimacy with you. If we're holding back because there's a a self-reliance in us that that stops us from praying, that stops us from coming to you, Lord, Lord, help us to deal with that. Lord, if we're just feeling down, we have a poor image of ourselves, help us to, to know that you see us as perfect, as beautiful. And if that is how you love us, then enable us to love you, Lord, and show our delight in you. Let's just have a moment of quiet to to speak to God on our own and ask him to come into our lives in whatever way that, that means, whatever aspect of your life where you need him to come in. So a moment of quiet, and then in a moment the group will lead us in our final song. I surrender all.